Welcome to the AR-15 Podcast. AR-15 Podcast. This is the podcast about your favorite black rifle. This show is for you if you're building your first AR or you've been building ARs for years. There is something we can all do to take our black rifle to the next level. Well, hey there, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Tonight we have with us a special guest, uh, Mark from Mad Dog Weapon Systems. Mark, how are you doing? Fantastic. Happy Thursday. Well, happy Thursday to you. So I reached out to Mark because we we wanted to follow up our five-part builder series with a show about barrels. Um, Mark, as Mark said um, in, in our discussions before we started, the barrel is the heart of the rifle. So I know we see a lot of emails from you asking, you know, the, the pertinent questions about how to choose a barrel. So we thought we'd come in, talk with someone who has far more experience than we do about uh, all things barrel. And so that's why we, uh, we have Mark on. So if any of this advice fails you, we want to give you Mark's email so you can, you can talk to him directly and he'll, he'll set you straight. <laughs> no, um, I'm no expert on anything, but I'm going to do the best I can. <laughs> so before we get started, Mark, let me go ahead and get a couple of our uh, housekeeping chores out of the way. Uh, Listeners, I'd like to let you know that you can support our show and the content that we provide to you by becoming a Patreon supporter. Uh, 100% of your donations go uh, directly into the show's budget. Uh, we utilize those contributions for equipment. We utilize it to increase our production value. We utilize it to um, just polish what it is we deliver. Now, this is not something that is sponsored. It's a show that is uh, a labor of love. And certainly, uh, if you love the show, any help you can give us helps us give you back a better product. So, uh, you know, I know that uh, JD is a, keeping a track record of all of our great listeners who are uh, supporting us at the old salty dog iron sight level. And so I'm unfortunately... Um, technologically crippled and, and can be of no use in gathering that information to give you guys a shout out. And of course we have a lot of you guys that support us at our $3 level, which is the, we're not going to utter your name on the air. So your wife can't figure out uh, where that money's going. And so I'm sure you don't want me to be technologically savvy so I can spill the beans on you. So with that, I just want to have you guys know that we have a way for you to help us provide you the thing that you tune into every week. So there we go. So, Mark, you know, I'm I'm utterly exhausted after a, a pretty busy tax season. And so, you know, uh, when we start our shows, we like to find out what we've been doing with firearms this last week. And, you know, I've, <laughs> I haven't been doing much at all. You know, I made my deadline and, and I had a day to recover. And so, you know, back sure. to the salt mines. But what have yeah. you been doing uh, in firearms this last week? Uh, hiring guys like you to make sure I don't get completely... Uh... <laughs> Um, you know, uh, go completely broke by the tax man. Um, so this week we've had, um, well, actually t this week was mostly business oriented things. So we had a lot of new inventory come in, um, that needed to be looked over and then get posted to the store and then go back out and everything. Um, it's been, it's been a fun week, but I have not had a lot of fun with firearms. I did complete, uh, one new personal AR build that I wanted to do, um, so at least I have that. It, it took me the whole week to get it done because of all the, um, you know, the regular work stuff. So I did accomplish something. I haven't shot it yet, but that'll be this weekend. So I'm feeling good about it. Looks nice. Feels good. Well, good. 
Well, I know that you guys have afforded me a uh, uh, an enormous courtesy in, in allowing me to um, test out one of uh, your your new uh, wildcat rounds, and so I want to let oh, you yeah. know that you know I, I have been recovering, but I've got all of my components. I've I've got my powders, I've got my primer, I've got my brass, courtesy of Bruce. Um, I've got my projectiles. I'm good to go. So I just yeah. need to get myself a little time in the shop, and I and and I think sure. that I'm. I'm right on the heels of that, so I'm excited. But good. nothing good happens over Matt Reed. Take your time and you know <laughs> do it right, and you'll enjoy it. You know, absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to start off with kind of I don't know a primer about barrel. So sure. you know we have a lot of listeners. They want to know everything from you know what twist rate, you know what chamber, uh, what length, what gas system, uh, what profile, what features do I need to have. In the barrel. And of course, these are all questions that I have an answer to because of experience. Um, sure. Some of the answers I have because I've read sources who mm-hmm. I believe are good sources, but I don't have that, that critical hands on piece because I've, I'm not a machinist. I mean, as much as I'd love to be able to, you know, make barrels and do that piece, it's not a skill set I possess. And so, I think that that's at the heart of what drives people to do what you've done. It's that, I don't know, that passion for the creation of these things. But along with it comes a much more robust robust uh, knowledge base to do it right and uh, to yeah. not, you know, deliver crap. You know, I'm sure you guys aren't making barrels out of tin or lead or, you know, alloys that are ridiculous because you know better. Um and of course, I, I better write. I better write that down <laughs> so we stop doing that. So, I want to start off with. Let's start off with a blank. So, sure. you know, I've got a a cousin-in-law that um, is a uh, what is it, Trinidad gunsmithing school trained gunsmith, and okay. he talks about um, axles. Now, I'm sure that that's probably an easy way to get to the kind of steel that he would want. But tell me when you guys are. Getting ready to make some barrels, mm-hmm. you order blanks. Is that right? That's correct. So, um, one of the things that uh, we chatted about quickly before we got on the air was that, um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the barrel is is the heart of the weapon system. It's the heart of the rifle system. So, you know, you're the brain, and and the barrel's the heart. So, uh, all of this is going to be purpose driven, and um, this is going to be one of those fun. Um, one of those fun conversations where everybody's opinions are based on their experiences and or what they've read and or Googled. Um, and Google tells different people different things sometimes. So, um, all I can, all I'm going to be able to give here and I'll do the best I can is, is, um, what we had to learn and had to learn along our timeline. Um, and some of the best, uh, some of the best learning is done by really screwing some stuff up, you know, by really doing some things wrong. So, uh, sometimes it's better to let some of the people who have already gone down that path do certain parts of the manufacturing process. So blanks, right? So purpose driven. So we're going to start with a, we're going to start with a purpose driven, uh, agenda here. So, are we talking a you know a bolt action rifle? Are we talking in a semi-auto rifle, or let's call it bolt action or an AR? Let's use a let's use a savage bolt action and let's use a an AR as the two examples. Now, what do we want to do with it? So now we're talking about um, it's a 
uh, Plinker Target Fun Gun, or it is a bench rest, uh, the most accurate thing you can get, or it's the most durable thing you can get. Um, it doesn't have to be the most accurate because durability is going to win. Um, it, it's all going to be purpose-driven. So what we make um, and what we have made for us are mostly AR barrels. Um, in our different Wildcats, we really like the MSR AR platform. So just about everything we do is in that platform. We do have some custom Savage barrels that we get done as well. Um, most of our blanks all come from uh, one source. Uh, we have um, uh, become quite confident in their ability to produce a quality blank um, within all of the specs and consistency um, so that we see the same uh, results all the time from what it is that we end up making. Uh, a blank is a a blank is where it all is where it all starts. So you've got this, you know, we can, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do all of the metallurgy and all of the crazy stuff, right? Sure. So you've got a purpose driven, the heart of the machine, you're going to know already walking into the game, kind of what length you want to accomplish what you want to accomplish. You're going to have some criteria set in your mind already. As far as, like I said, are we talking about a match grade, um, bench rest style, uh, fire 12 rounds a year type of thing, or is this the type of thing where you're not so concerned about it being the most accurate, but you want it to last a long, long time? Um, so it's purpose-driven. So you're going to go, and so we're going to say uh, you're, you're building an, an MSR, an AR, and that's pretty common nowadays, so we'll just go with that. Uh, you know that you need it to be at least 16 inches, and you already know the cartridge that you want it to be in, right? Okay. So if it's a purpose-driven AR, let's say you want it to be a 16-inch barrel because you can't have SBRs or something. Uh, it's got to be 16 inches minimum, so that's what you're going with. And it is a uh, target, fun, planking, slash, I want to do some whitetail hunting as well. Okay, so now you've got some criteria built. You're going to decide on a cartridge. And uh, we won't go into cartridges because I'm not going to talk about, you know, you know, which ones are better. And we're not doing it, right? So we're just talking about barrels. So you've picked your cartridge, you've picked your purpose, and you've already kind of decided in your mind what it is that you're looking to get out of it and, um, you know, um, what factors are more important to you, whether it be the bench rest type or, you know, uh, the, the durability military machine gun type or somewhere in the middle. So we'll just go with somewhere in the middle. Well, let me, so now let we're me, the let me ask you some questions here real quick. So... Yeah. In terms of what comes to you as a manufacturer mm -hmm. of barrels, has the metallurgy, the metallurgist, the, the, the source of your barrels, have they pretty much identified, here's what you're going to have a choice with. You have a choice yes. of A, this material which gives you durability, or B, this metal that gives you um, sure. uh, accuracy, or this metal which is going to yeah. suffice for at least what you want to be able to do and it's not going to break the bank. So it isn't going to be last till the end of days and it isn't going to drill, you know, hole over hole groups, yeah. but it's cost yeah. effective and it will do everything you'll ever demand of it for that role. Absolutely. The three most common steels that you'll see barrels made in is 416R stainless, which is more of your um, target and I'll talk about why, but it's more of your target, not that they're not durable, not that they can't take, you know, take some heat, but they're more, they're more of a target, a quote unquote, and without this show going on for hours, I'm going to use some terms <laughs> and you might get some emails or whatever. And I might, I don't care, but you know, stainless will be inherently more accurate for a few reasons, which I'll touch on later. 
Um, the machine gun grade steel that is used is 4150V or 4150CMV, depending on who you talk to, whatever it's called. Uh, but that's a 4150 um, chromoly vanadium barrel blend. Um, 4140 is also a chromoly steel, and that's kind of, you know, uh, it's not as hard. It has a little bit lower carbon content, 4140 versus 4150, and lacks the vanadium, which is a heat erosion. Anyways, so stainless is going to be basically your bench rest target barrel most of the time. Um, not that 4150 CMVs can't be super accurate. Anyways, 4150 CMV is going to be more of your more durable steel, uh, again, with heat erosion, um, chemical erosion, uh, mechanical erosion. 4140 is going to be one of those where you can get it for a little bit less than 4150 CMV. If you're not making machine gun barrels, you don't need to pay the little bit extra for the 4150 right. CMV. So um, now, that being said, you've got this this blank, right? So we can get pretty crazy. So how is this blank made? So they take they take this tubular piece of barrel steel, certain grade, tested, hardness is tested, all that good stuff. So we know it's a good a good blank. It's what we wanted, right? Then it goes to a, a deep hole driller. And <clears throat> for example, um, here's this tube, right? Here's a, a here's a here's a barrel blank. Um, and what they need to do now is put a hole down the middle of it, right? So they're going to take this stainless or they're going to take this 4140 or this 4150 CMV blank and it's going to be a, let's just call it a 223. Um, so they need to make a hole that goes through all this so that they can then rifle it afterwards. So obviously this hole is going to be smaller than the end result so that they can push the rifling buttons through and all that good stuff or pull the rifling buttons through or push the cuts through, whatever. We'll get to that too. So now you've got this, you trust a, a quality piece of steel and they're going to take this blank and they're going to deep drill a hole, which is tricky business. These are very expensive machines that do this because that hole has to be completely straight. All right. Completely straight. Um, so in theory, if you were going to uh, create a bore for a two, two, three, you're talking mm -hmm. about a less than 22 caliber hole. Absolutely. So less than uh, 0.22 inches. Yeah. Just barely so that they can push the rifling, pull the rifling button through or push the cutter through or, uh, it's different for hammer forge, which we'll get into. Um, so they've got to drill a hole. When it comes to hammer forge, the hole is going to be a little bit bigger than the end result, which I'll talk about. Um, but for rifled barrels, whether it's cut or button, it's going to be a little bit smaller because right. the button that gets pulled through or the cut that gets pushed through is going to remove material. Whereas with a hammer forge, what they do is they make a hole bigger than the end result, and then they slip a mandrel through it and hammer forge the barrel the, over the mandrel, which collapses the steel down onto the mandrel, which creates the rifling. Right. Now, there's a lot of, you know, speculation conversations. Some folks say hammer forge barrels are more durable because you're compressing the steel, not unlike when you forge, and that's cool, and, and I'm not going to argue either way. Some issues about aligning the the crystalline structure of iron or and the steel when you're hammer forging it also. I mean, they're just different so, kind of elements that people attribute to the methodology that goes into the, the steel, yeah. right? And that, that's one of yeah. the things that's brought up. Yeah. And, yeah, and with, again, without going into all of the crazy science, um, hammer forge barrels are, it, it, hammer forging is an awesome process for mass production. Tooling lasts a lot longer um, you can set up 
um, uh, you can set up multiple bays with multiple barrels being made at the same time through the same machines and, and all that good stuff. So uh, some of the bigger, like the Daniel Defenses and the Remingtons and some of the other, they, they will hammer forage barrels because um, it's a little bit easier production-wise and theoretically there's a favorable result. Right. Um, right. However, the most common is going to be button rifle, um, and it's the most common because uh, of the processes, and not everybody's ordering, you know, 5,000 of the same barrel at the same time, um, so that's hammer forging. Now, button rifling, uh, once they drill the, so hammer forge, bigger hole, smush the steel around the mandrel to create the rifling, and then you have a rifled blank, right? Right. Um, in the twist rate and rifling profile, that either they offer and take it or leave it, or the one that you choose if you go crazy custom through Krieger, Bartland, you name it, that type of thing, right? So button rifling uh, or cut rifling, now they'll say cut rifling is more accurate. We'll talk about that that too, but button rifling is the most most popular. Uh, after they drill a small hole, they pull this button through, uh, which creates, like carves the, the rifling into the, the internal, uh, the interior of the steel through the blank, uh, creating your your lands and grooves with a cut, it's a more of a push, um, almost if you could picture like a like a like a like a chiseling, if you will, a cutting effect, um, pushing steel out. Now I've actually had the pleasure of seeing an old what is it a Pratt and Whitney, um, uh, what is it rifle cutting machine? Yep. Yeah, I, I've actually seen a 1927 version in action. So yeah, it's a fascinating it's thing to watch. It's cool stuff, right? So Krieger, for example, Krieger does um, uh, cut rifling, um, and and again with the material. So if you're taking a stainless steel blank, which uh, theoretically would be inherently more accurate because it's easier to machine, which means you can more easily create a smooth surface. Really, at the end of the day, that's what that's about. Um, cut rifling in a stainless steel barrel is generally what you'll see a lot of the. Um, the, the uh, competition shooters, bench rest shooters go after because, uh, again, when you combine those two factors, you have a better control over the consistency, you know, of the bore itself. Hammer forge is great for mass production. Uh, there's also, again, theoretically some durability, you know, points to it as well. But button rifling is about what 90% of the barrels you're going to get out there are, again, right. because of the manufacturing process. Um and it's the most common because it's probably the one of the easier um, one of the easier uh, ways to to approach it. Um, so we've we've got our we've got our blank. We've either hammer forged it, button rifled it, or cut rifled it. It's going to be made out of stainless 4140, 4150 CMV, whatever we chose for whatever our purpose is. Right? It's going to be in the twist rate. Now this is super important. So. It's going to be in the rifling profile or pattern and twist rate that A, you either chose or B, that the company that you bought it from offered and that's what they have, right? It is, uh, it is imperative to, um, again, since we're talking about a purpose-driven machine here, to understand the twist rate for the bullet or bullets that you plan on pushing through this thing, okay? There's a lot of external ballistics and science and all kinds of crazy stuff we could talk about as to why. <clears throat> um, but again, if it's purpose driven, you pretty much know what you want to do with it. There's some standards out there. So two, two, three, you know, generally you've got, you know, 12 twists for the super light, longer barrel type old M16 styles. You've got 
Um, uh, Nine Twist, which was, you know, just after that, pretty common. Eight Twist in the Wildy Chambers, which is a nice compromise between Seven Twist and Nine Twist. But again, it's purpose driven. You have to do, you have to do a little bit of homework no matter what. I, they're, they're very much like cars, right? They're, there's a reason you're getting this particular vehicle to do a certain right. thing. And you need to understand what that car or barrel can do. Well, let's break that down a little bit. So in general terms, Mm -hmm. the bigger the projectile, we're talking mass, you know, a 77 grain versus a 55 grain. Sure. You're going to spin it up faster to get accuracy on that projectile. Is that, is that a good rule of thumb? Yeah. Yes and all right. So so yes and so yes and no. You don't want to overstabilize a projectile, right? Um, and you and you don't want to understabilize a projectile. And a lot of a lot of folks um, will say that it's all about weight, but it's not necessarily about weight. Um, it, it's a combination of uh, weight and length. So uh, how much engraving force you you have. So how much bear, mm-hmm. how much of the bullet on the bearing surface of the of the bore uh, combined with its weight. Um, and these things have been. Um, again, way over, uh, all, all of the years, these things have been way tested, uh, as to what twist rates are appropriate for which bullets. And, um, at the end of the day, you want to, uh, rely on the bullet manufacturer to tell you what's the best twist rate for that particular bullet. Okay. Um, now granted there's wiggle room, right? So, you know, you can, you can, you can push this bullet, that bullet, this bullet, they're all in the same window, but, um, at the end of the day, the bullet manufacturer will be able to tell you exactly what the best twist rate for that particular bullet is to for it to be more inherently accurate. Because overstabilization is bad um, at, when you're talking extreme long range, okay? So at extreme long ranges, over 1,000 meters, right, uh, overstabilization is bad because of um, what well, we won't get into super extreme long range uh, external ballistics, but... Um, well, the rotation the is creating the, lift, right? Well, what it is is you've got the axis. Well, this is going to get fun. So you've got you've got the projectile, right? And it's got a center of gravity and a center of pressure. Right. And unlike an arrow, where the center of pressure is in the back, the center of pressure in a bullet's in the in the more forward position. And overstabilization will cause. I'm going to do my best, right? Your overstabilization will cause this. Bullet leaves the barrel on its arc, and what you would imagine a bullet would do is this. Right when it goes to its target at the end of its arc, but overstabilization will cause it to do this. Now, in that case, makes sense? In ca- yeah, in case you're uh, listening to the podcast, what Mark is, uh, I think, showing us is the the trajectory of a football. Now, yes, when that so your when football that football will come, yeah, your football will either hit a target point down, you know, the tip pointing toward more towards the target, or in an overstabilized fashion. Your bullet at, in the line of departure, this is called the line of departure, right? And it'll stay at that angle and then come down at close to that same angle. So really, if this is your target, I mean, I don't know how to do this on my phone, but you're hitting the target like this versus hitting the target like this. Under so, stabilization is so the receiver, well. the receiver would catch the ball if it's properly stabilized with the, the point of the ball in his in his palms, whereas if it was overstabilized, the um, the threads, the laces would land in his palms, not the the tip of the football. That's why you run the show, man. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
and under stabilization is going to so there's i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to stop i'm going to stop the whole the whole thing really quick because when we get into uh ballistics and 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 it, the results of this machine you're building i highly suggest and i don't i don't do a lot of um plugging a lot of i highly suggest that if you want to learn kind of the nitty gritty from beginning to end the life of a, a bullet uh and your 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 firing solutions and all Go to YouTube, look up the Sniper 101 series, and spend the the three weeks um, and go from beginning to end and and watch it. Okay, um, it's like ninety or it's like a hundred uh, YouTube videos by a guy named Taborosaurus Rex. Anyways, he explains a lot of this sort of stuff, and he's right on. Uh, really knowledgeable guy. Your barrel is just the internal ballistics portion of this whole thing. So once it leaves, so once it leaves the barrel. Outside of the transitional phase, the transitional ballistics, right? Once the barrel, le- once the bullet leaves the barrel, it's all external. Right. And what it does out there is what it's going to do. But a lot of that has to do with what it did in here. Okay. Inside the barrel, you are imparting physics or the properties of physics to the projectile. You're you've, setting the tone. Yeah. You've yeah, begun you're setting the spin, the, the speed. Do. You you've yep. chosen a projectile, you know, yep. A versus B, uh, to even begin with. So yeah. It's a, it's an enormous so I, body of variables that are broken down into. Would you say it's three distinct subsets: the internal ballistics, transitional ballistics, external ballistics. External. So, yep, I would. Three fundamental, enormous groups. And I mean, when we're talking external ballistics, we're talking, you know, wind. We're talking gravity. We're talking the motion of the Earth. We're talking about the rotation of a projectile and how the rotation versus its forward momentum affects lift and drag and all these other factors, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think the truth be told, um, a lot of the way people used to shoot was that intuitive ability of the human mind to understand these things and make calculations. I mean, it's Kentucky windage for a reason, but it's yep. not just, oh, I'm just going to, you know, make a wild ass guess and hope it gets there. It's the accumulation of data over time that allows the human brain. Well, now we have wind machines and we have all of these other complex calculating devices that can take the load off. But still, you got to have a guy behind the trigger. Yeah, yeah. so the the barrel being the heart and the the shooter being the brain. That's the way I look at it. And you can can own a – you can own all the ballistic calculators and everything you want and all that good stuff. But um, until you get out there and you actually shoot this thing – um, you won't really know, truly know what it does because of all of the other variables and factors like, you know, uh, bore condition, harmonics, um, and 19,000 other things that all add up mm-hmm. to this end result, which is, you know, bullet on target. Um, but for the sake of our, our show tonight, um, I think we're going, we're focusing mostly on the internal, the, 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 the blank that becomes the cool looking barrel. So, all right, so you know what you want to do your projectile. You know how far you want to shoot it. That's going to determine your length, your you know what what kind of cartridge you're shooting, what your target's going to be, and all that good stuff. So now you're like, all right, well, end result is is what 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 barrel am I going to end up with, right? So let's let's stick with two two three since most people know about how six and two two three run. <clears throat> all right, so you're going to go with an eight twist uh, two two three wild chamber. 
um, which is, uh, uh, for sake of a longer conversation, uh, a good compromise between five, five, six, NATO, and two, two, three. Okay, we'll just call it that. Somewhere in somewhere in the middle, mostly in the lead, but whatever. All right. So you want it to be kind of you know pretty accurate. That's why you got the cool kind of hybrid chamber. But you also want to be able to shoot it as much as you want to as well. You don't want to have to maintain it a lot, or you you do want to maintain it a lot. That's those are some of your next steps. So you've gotten um, whatever you decided on your barrel. This one's cool and fluted and super long, and you know has a nice crown and whatever AR barrel. So here's your here's what you ended up with. This is what you bought. Now let me yeah, ask you some like- some questions about that piece right there. So yeah. we've we've chosen the wild chamber and we've chosen a, a one and eight twist. So are you going to have the choice of uh, what is the the ten fifty uh, CMV forty one fifty CMV? Yeah. So a lot of a lot of production. Again, one of the things you'll notice is that a lot of your production high production barrels are forty one forty. CM 4140 chromoly or 4150 CMV chromoly vanadium. Um, and that's because just to put it bluntly, um, people just want to go shoot, right. right? And they might not treat it the best and they're not bench rest shooters anyhow. And they're not shooting for a quarter MOA and it is what it is. And we, all, all of us barrel folks nowadays, uh, with the technology and the, and the ammunition can all, can all pretty much, you know, quote unquote, guarantee sub MOA with whatever barrel material, whatever barrel length, because of all the cool stuff we have now. Um, but if you were trying to shoot um, super long range varmint, but you wanted to use the two two three wild, you'd go after something more like a, you know, twenty two inch, twenty four inch barrel made out of stainless. And if you want to go, you know, pretty crazy you'd go cut rifled you'd go to a company like krieger or bartland maybe mm-hmm. um and you'd spend a ton of money on this you know piece of art not unlike a bentley as far as cars go right? Right, right so if you're willing to spend that much for a bentley you end up with a bentley however you know your um <clears throat> your uh your lincoln town car will get you there as well you know sure, sure. so um well and I think the thing that prompts the question is that, of course, we hear in the chrome molly vanadium steels that they're used in the hammer forged um, factories, the, the hammer forging factories. And, of course, predominantly what we understand is that if we're talking hammer forged barrel, it's military or it's in that vein. And so we're talking about usually a one in seven twist in a NATO chamber. So the mm-hmm. question is, I think, to extrapolate even further – are you going to find guys with the big hammer forging systems doing wild chambers with eight, one and eight twist or no? So to get into that steel, they're no longer hammer forged. You're using that steel, but it's using an, another rifling boring process than the cold hammer forging. And 90% of it would be button rifling. Yep. So, uh, to go back earlier, um, the, the hammer forge, so large production hammer forge. Now there are there are a few. Now there are some few obscure companies out there that do have some pretty kind of goofy stuff that they can do in hammer forge, or whatever. And that's right, fine. Right. Generally speaking, no, you're going to get. Sorry, you know. So let's call it Daniel Defense. You can't call Daniel Defense and say I really like the fact that you make hammer forge barrels. What I want is, um, you know, uh, a four sixteen Barrett in you know nine and a half twist. 
at 32 inch. They're going to no, no, that we don't do that's not, we don't, we're not, we don't do that. You can, here's your, here's your five, five, six NATO 16 inch barrel. Go have fun. Right. Right. So when you get into crazy custom barrels, those are generally speaking going to be the folks that are using, um, more of your, your target barrel steels, whether it be 416 R stainless or, or, you know, you don't get me wrong. Like you can, you can make a really, really accurate 4150 CMV barrel. Um, it's just that it's just, it's a, it's a little bit different. Again, stainless is a little bit easier to machine. It's easier right. to make smooth. Um, if you're talking about nitriding barrels or melanite treating barrels, you know, the difference between a stainless barrel and a nitride barrel um, is going to be that you can, you can kind of mess with your stainless barrel. You can, you know, you, you can lap it. You can, um, over time, uh, you, you can, it's going to retain its, its smoothness. Um, and it's going to have a little bit more of a polish to it and a resistance to copper fouling. Um, and this is going to get into crazy science with, you know, chemical erosion and mechanical erosion and heat erosion and all that. The 4150 CMV nitride barrel, if you get an accurate one when it shows up at your door, it'll stay that way for a long time. Right. But if you get an inaccurate one when it shows up at your door, you really can't do anything about it. It'll um, stay that way not, for a long time. It'll stay that way for a long time. Yeah. So now there's a lot of quality 4150 CMV nitride barrel manufacturers out there. Don't get me wrong. Um, but again, if you go to, if you look at um, the hardcore bench rest shooters, you know, they're, they're shooting stainless and there's a reason which, you know, we can talk about it for hours, but. Well, you know, um, I, I heard a gunsmith. I had a gunsmith explain to me that, uh, his, you know, thumbnail sketch of the issue was that it was softer. You could cut it easier. And because it was easier to cut, it was softer. Your rifling was more square. So he also said that when you're talking about a cold hammer forged barrel, um, there is not that crispness of the cut because yes. it's this enormously abusive procedure. So you're not going to get that kind of precision when you got a hammer coming at you from all sides trying to shrink that steel on a mandrel. So, Correct. and he said that's why a stainless steel barrel will burn out because it's softer. Yes. So even though you can impart that really crisp rifling on it, it won't last as long as the other one. Right. So, I mean, it's kind of a trade-off. And and I'm assuming that across the spectrum from as accurate as science and technology can make it to as long as it will last, you know, it'll last forever, <clears throat> you're giving up parts of each side of the spectrum depending on the direction you travel. It, you and you are, and I want to uh, I want to touch on uh, barrel life since we kind of just jumped into that spot, which is all of these are all of these are three hour conversations. But barrel life is something different to everybody, right? Right. The average barrel life, you know, the average life of a barrel is two seconds. If you go with forty one fifty CMV, right, a machine gun grade barrel, and all, you know, it's two and a quarter seconds, two and a half seconds. People don't understand what I mean by that sometimes, but literally, if you think about the actual amount of time that a bullet is in your bore, the average life of a barrel is about two seconds, two and a quarter seconds. That's it. And then it's shot out, they would say. Now, in stainless, you're going to reach that, that spot quicker, especially depending on how you treat your barrel. Barrel life is not a timeline. It's not a linear thing, right? So if I only shoot my stainless barrel... Um, 
a hundred rounds a year in competition, um, and I don't bench rest break it in, uh, I break it in for copper equilibrium, let's say, my stainless barrel is going to last longer than the, the bench rest guy's barrel as far as what they expect to get out of it. Right. As soon as the, the throat and the lead start to erode, um, you know, it changes. Does that mean it's shot out? Eh, not necessarily. It means you need to adjust a little bit. Um, on your machine gun style 4150 CMV barrels and stuff, you're dealing with a lot of um, uh, usually some abusive behaviors, mag dumps and you know, shot after shot after shot, not letting it cool off and all, and all that good stuff. So your heat erosion is going to be huge um, because that's why you bought it so that you can go do mag dumps with it, and that's cool. Um, but now you're compounding the heat erosion. How do you clean your barrel? Uh, has a lot to do with how much chemical erosion you have. So the science behind the science uh, is a case-by-case basis, and I have a stainless barrel that would last 10 years longer than somebody else's 4150 CMV barrel because of the way I treat it and the way I shoot it versus the way they, they shot their barrel. Right. But at the end of the day, you're really looking at about two seconds versus two and a half seconds before your average person says, ah, I shot up my barrel. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to um, break this down for the, the listener that may not be understanding that. So in, in terms of the, the nanosecond it takes for a projectile to uh, have enough force behind it to begin its flight to the moment it clears the barrel. Um, it could be such a n- tiny fraction of time that literally uh, thousands of rounds can be put through the barrel for every second. You know, maybe tens of thousands of rounds mm-hmm. for every second because it is such an enormously quick flight from ignition to departure. It is. And there's so much pressure and so much heat involved. The fact that this stuff even works in the first place is just cool. Like pistons in an engine. Like really? Um, the amount of, the amount of heat. So stainless is softer. Stainless is going to be affected more, um, quickly by the heat. It's going to be more affected by mechanical erosion. Uh, depending on how you treat it, it may be either more affected by chemical erosion or a little bit less affected by chemical erosion. Um, what type of ammunition you're shooting? Super hot loads or soft loads? Uh, mag dumps or one shot, let it cool, one shot, let it cool? How did you break it in? Did you do the bench rest? You know, uh, take one shot, clean it, take another shot, clean it for 60 rounds, and then do two shots. In for, so you're 200 rounds in and you clean the barrel, you know, 300 times. Uh, or copper equilibrium where, you know, you, you know, you shoot it, clean it, shoot it five, clean it, shoot it 10, clean it, non-abrasives. And now you have some copper equilibrium. You're, you're getting towards copper equilibrium and you never want to necessarily clean that out. Um, there's so much that really goes into this, that when uh, you go online or you go into a store and you buy a barrel, right? Um, for, for what the way you look at it is I want it in this cartridge. I want it you know, I heard it should be in this twist, or you know it should be in this twist. I heard it should be in this material, or I want it in this material. Uh, and you and you either build your rifle and go shoot it, um, or you buy a rifle off the rack and you get the barrel that came off the line at the time that you buy it, and you figure it out, you know. Um, there's tons of imperfections in all of them. There's no such thing as a, you know, a completely perfect bore. Um, but, you know, the less imperfections, the better as far as accuracy goes. Um, the profile 
can affect harmonics, you know, uh, you know, rigidity of the barrel. There's this term that people throw around called barrel whip. So if you've got a really long, skinny barrel, they say it's got too much barrel whip. You can call it whip or whatever, but you can still make a long, skinny barrel shoot really well if if it's if if you have if you have good harmonics. And it's not just in the barrel; it's the entire rifle. So um, harmonics, uh, which there's been some um, pretty lame. Uh, videos out there about people trying to explain harmonics let's put it that way but uh, uh, people shouldn't do things if they don't know what they're talking about um i at least admit that i only know a little bit and i'll only talk about what i know about so harmonics is this is the is is when you every every motion every moment every click every everything trigger pull firing pin moving everything uh you know your shot start pressure um your peak all of those things uh, cause of, let's just say vibrations. Okay. Vibrations in the rifle system. Okay. Um, the barrel being the heart, um, to keep it simple, generally speaking, the more rigid your barrel is, um, the less affected by harmonics it will, it will, it will be, but it's one piece of the rifle system, right? So if you've got a $900 barrel on a sloppy wooden stock, it's going to, it's going to shoot like crap. It just is. Um, a lot of people say, oh, this barrel sucks or, you know, this barrel doesn't shoot. Um, but really you have to, if you're buying factory ammo off the shelf and you're putting it through a factory built rifle, whatever you get out of it is what you're going to get out of it. Uh, however, it's been built. Uh, however, things are tight or loose, uh, the quality of the barrel, all these things. But if we're talking about just the barrel, um, understanding that the entire rifle system is affected by harmonics, um, you know, you have nodes and you have anti-nodes and all that good stuff. Um, the more rigid a barrel is, um, the, the less affected harmonics it, at its largest anti-node, the muzzle, it's going to be. So that's why you see long-range um, uh, folks, generally speaking, really shooting super thick, heavy barrels. Okay, for a few reasons, but that's definitely one of them. Rigidity, rigidity affecting, you know, having uh, less of a, uh, harmonics having less of an effect on a, a very rigid barrel. Um, two is heat dissipation, right? So um, fluting. If you want to talk about fluting, we'll get into it. But I'm probably going to make somebody mad, and that's okay. Um, the rigidity of the barrel is going to create a uh, more balanced environment as far as heat dissipation, uh, um, and uh, we'll just call it barrel harmonics as possible. Not that a thin barrel won't shoot well. Don't get right. me wrong. Look all this stuff up. We're not going to be on here for nine hours to go through it all, but um, how you load your ammunition has everything to do with harmonics as well. Um, but generally speaking, if you buy an expensive barrel from a reputable manufacturer, if you they, they, the way they're going to approach this is they did their part. Right. right. They gave you um, they gave you a quality tool. They gave you a quality hammer. Um, if you go out trying to um, break down cinder blocks with your um, finish hammer and it doesn't do a great job, don't call me. You're using the wrong hammer for the job, okay? Right, right. Um, if you're trying to shoot um, 77 grain, two, two, three bullets through your 12-twist A1 that your grandpa gave you and they don't hit anything, you didn't do your homework, right? That type of stuff, right? So barrels nowadays can actually be had um, more economically than they ever have been. Again, with all the technology and computers, it's less less hands and more machines and uh, CNCs and all these crazy things spitting out all this stuff, right? 
you can get a really, really well-made barrel for a couple hundred bucks. Right. Now, is it going to be as well-made as the Bentley at $900? Mm, quantify that, right? So are we talking about what type? Now we're talking about what type of rifling. Did it was a cut button or hammer for it? Now we're talking about, you know, did it have the exact twist rate that I wanted for the exact caliber I wanted? Was it, you know, did it have cryo treatments done to it? Um, did the Pope bless it? I mean, I don't know. Whatever stuff, right? Right. So at the end of the day, though, nowadays, I mean, if you look at companies like, you know, I mean, what, VA and Fax and all, you can get a good barrel for a couple hundred bucks. There's going to be a bad apple in the bunch no matter who you buy from. So um, can you, if you could just imagine the QC process of something like this, right, there are 90 different variables going on here and all sorts of things and, you know, Sometimes one gets, you know, through quality and it's just not a good barrel. And usually after it's been diagnosed, you know, it'll get replaced. But, um, well, let me, let me ask you some questions here before we kind of move on to some of the AR specific stuff when it comes to the sure. barrels. So if I am willing to do the homework and do the legwork, are there, are there materials, metals that, you can use for barrels that aren't common that give you an edge for some feature or function you're looking for. I mean, instead right. of the 416R, is there a better stainless? Instead of the, you know, 4050 CMV, is there a yeah. better, more durable steel for that high intensity function? Or okay. are we basically at the pinnacle of what the market and science tells us we can get to, and that's not realistic. Okay, so you can take, um, so the different numbers associated with steels have to do with um, their um, molecular content, if you will, their, 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 their structure. So um, let me get to a little link here real quick. So, um, all right, so like a 41V50 or 4150 CMV barrel, has a, that's a that's a that's actually a a, a specific spec um, that's been uh, tested, tried, and true by multiple militaries, if you will, and whoever it was that at some point said, "Hey, this is the blend we want." You know, they tested it and it works great for what the outcome is that they want. Right? So, lots of people are producing that steel. Forty-one forty um, is another chromoly steel that. Uh, doesn't have all of the properties that 4150 uh, CMV has, for example, but it's so close that the difference is negligible unless you're talking about seriously like mounting it to a machine gun, okay? Um, and on an actual machine gun where you're going to be dumping mags and belts through it as, a, as its job, uh, a 4150 CMV barrel is going to do better um, due to the, uh, the, the, the molecular makeup having a little bit more, uh, a little bit more better, that's funny, a little bit better uh, heat erosion resistance, okay? But it's but it's it's negligible unless you're in that machine gun type factor. A 4140CM barrel is going to be just as good as a 4150 unless you're talking about building machine guns. Um, is there a, a 416R? So there's a, there's a lots of other stainlesses out there. You know, your four, there's, there's tons of them. But over time, these are considered barrel steels. Um, and they're considered barrel steels not only because they're the most common, but they've become the most common because they were the, um, um, I hate the word best, uh, but the, the industry decided that these were 
the standards of steels that would be used for barrel steels. They have to do um, things a little bit different than steels made for other things do, um, like a spring. You know, a spring is made up of a specific type of metal that's been treated a specific type of way because it has a specific purpose. Right. So are, so are barrel steels. Um, sure, you could you could um, you know you could play with the amount of uh, uh, phosphorus or sulfur in your. You know, sure, you, you could, but you know people have been doing this for a long time. Um, well, one of the things that kind of brings this in in my mind to the forefront is a discussion I had with a a, a fellow that I have come to know who owns a company that makes. Um, things for the oil industry Mm -hmm. and in our discussion he talked about metal that is controlled by the department of defense it can't be exported because it is in some material way you know possessed of certain technology that you know they don't want it in somebody else's hands and i'm assuming it so that they can figure out so you know, in my mind, that leads me to the question of, well, what is out there that might make a rifle better? Now, I mean, I think you're right. And then there's always that cost-benefit analysis. When when you've been doing this long enough, you get to an understanding of what you're dealing with sure. and mm-hmm. when you're going to have a significant drop-off in return for what you're investing in. I'm sure you could make a million dollar barrel. I don't know how it would be any better than a $200 barrel, but I'm sure you could find a way to make one. Yeah. All right. If we're, if we're, if we're, if we're going down, if we're going to go, if we're going down that, sure. I'm, I'm sure you can, um, source, um, a, uh, a type of steel, uh, that has, uh, certain, uh, properties, um, ingredients, if you will, to, uh, give you something uh, different than what's being offered now. Uh, how, however, I think that, that a lot of people have tried that before when it comes to some of your basic barrel steels. Right. Uh, and we've, we've all kind of agreed um, that these are the um, uh, purpose-driven steels for the objects that we're making. Now, granted, I'm sure there's all kinds of fancy, crazy, cool stuff. I mean, heck, there's gold-plated AKs out there, for, you know, so <laughs> you can... You can you can do it you can do whatever you want you know um, but at the end of the day to find somebody that's going to make it for you or that can get a supply of it and then if you go to um, if you if you go to shoot it uh, and it wasn't done right or it breaks <laughs> you know it's um, I'm sure I'm sure it can be done I'm sure there's lots of other and there's people playing out there constantly with all types of right, things right um, well, it's kind of like industry Every once yeah. in a while, somebody wants to buy a Ferrari and then they wrap it around a telephone pole. Right. Or, uh, or rent. Yeah, rent. Yeah, exactly. That happened, uh, in Vegas. Anyways, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they've, uh, okay. So, uh, generally, let's, you know, generally speaking, pistons in a car are made of, uh, across the boards, you know, the same materials because they've been proven to be the right materials for the job. Okay. Right. right. Now, sure. Maybe Bentley's pistons have, you know, diamond studs on them or something. I don't know what they do or whatever, but um, <laughs> sure, you can. But at the end of the day, it's a piston, you know. Um, the life of a barrel, When before we started the show, I, one of the things I asked you was like, did you want to take the approach of, hey, a chunk of steel, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, become this barrel. You, gotta, you really got really to look at it that way because 
you're 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 picking the material that you want it to be out of, and now so now you've got a hunk of steel. You're picking the cartridge that you want it to be in. So now you know what uh, what caliber and generally what projectile you're going to shoot. So what twist rate you're going to want. You know you you know you you know if you're going to want threaded or a recessed crown. And we can talk about muzzles in a minute. Um, AR or, or bolt action, so you know what type of barrel it has to be. If it's an AR, what gas system length is best recommended for that that cartridge or that type of cartridge, um, and that barrel length. Uh, now you have this awesome, you know, pretty blank that you're ready to turn into a barrel, and, and you look around and you go, "Man, who's going to make this into a barrel for me now?" Right. So now you got to have someone skim it, <coughs> uh, profile it, chamber it, fit an extension, and all that crazy other barrel stuff that goes into making a barrel, which any of those processes along the way, if any of those go sideways or wrong, you know, you may have had a really expensive, nice blank, but, you know, in the machining process, it got screwed up. Um, your barrel's oblong or your board's not, it's not in the concentric. center. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, you go to throw on your 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 uh, your uh, crazy cookie cut. What do they call them? Whatever flash thingies. You know, your 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 muzzle brake stuff, and it's not on center. You know, yeah. Or, or it it feels like impossible to thread on. Or um, yeah, all sorts of all sorts. Or your crown is is dinged. You know, uh, I'll tell you if you know. There's a few things. Again, uh, your crown is so important, and I don't think people really understand this or know this is that if you're going to protect your barrel in any way shape or form the first one's got to be protecting the crown okay um that's why you have you know like a like a threaded barrel you know as an opportunity to have a device on it which will protect its crown uh some of your target barrels like this will have a recessed crown okay um protect the crown right and then your chamber which is where the cartridge your chamber where the cartridge, you know, goes boom, right? Uh, you need to protect your, um, your your throat, your lead, the forcing cone, and all that good stuff when you're cleaning to not be too aggressive, to not be chipping away at that sucker. Um, Molly-coated bullets and not in all kinds of funky stuff. Um, there's lots of theories on that. You know, you shouldn't use them unless you really, really, really know how to clean them out of the, clean the molly out of the nooks and crannies, and then uh, the molly is basically going to leave a, um, Leave deposits on the fissures uh, in your bore, which will add up over time. Way too much to really cover in a show. Um, at the end of the day, if you buy a if you buy a a good barrel from a quality supplier or manufacturer, it's a purpose driven tool. You're you know how to take care of it for what it is, um, and it's an overall it's a it's a it's a good design for a barrel as far as its contour. Um, it's rigidity again, it's harmonics. You're going to have a good barrel. Now, once you, once you have it, it's, it's kind of up to you how to keep it good. Um, and that has everything to do with how you treat it. Um, logging your, you know, logging your bore conditions, uh, finding your copper equilibrium, knowing how much to clean it and how much not to, when to, and when not to. But for your average person out there, um, again, a reputable, uh, um, supplier is going to get you a pretty good barrel, you know, barring any lemons that made it out of QC, which happened, um, for a couple hundred bucks, a few hundred bucks, you know, two to $300. Once you get above that, you're getting into the, um, all the little extra special goodies and details that the barrel manufacturer or blank supplier, I mean, heck, you can, you can pay 
you can pay 500 bucks for a blank. Um, and then you got to go get it made into a barrel, you know? Um, so relative, relatively, relatively speaking, it is a lot like cars. Okay. You do get what you pay for, but at the end of the day, your everyday normal shooter barrel, like your, what are some of the average cars that are out there now? Like a Dodge Neon, whatever, you know, well, okay. So yeah, there's going to be a higher grade and lower grade average barrels too, but I think people understand what I'm saying, right? So you can buy the Bentley or you can buy the Lincoln Town car or you can buy a bunch of Chevy Malibus or whatever. And it, it, it is kind of like that. Now, there are some folks out there that are charging more than what their barrels are, are really worth or cost them. And that's cool. And there's some folks out there that probably could charge more for the end, you know, the end product that you actually get. Um, at the end of the day, you buy, a, you, you buy a good barrel from a reputable place. It's going to be a good barrel. Once you get it, it's up to you, and it's all about how you treat it. Right. And as long as you got what it was that you wanted as far as your purpose-driven decisions, this is a 22-inch, 6-millimeter mongoose, spiral-fluted, uh, 4140, and then nitride, melanite-treated AR barrel, fretted 5H24. Okay? So that's what this, this is. This is what I wanted it to be. Right. If, if I didn't, if I wanted it to be this... Then I would have bought this. Um, this is a 416R stainless Savage prefit barrel for a Wolverine, for example. And it's got a recessed crown. Where's the camera? It's got a recessed crown on it. Okay. Here's a little eight and a half inch. Um, I'm sorry. They, they. It's probably just as accurate as the other ones, but it's a beater barrel for me. It's a pistol barrel, right? So I'm going to put this on a little pistol upper, and I'm going to shoot it until I burn it out, and I'm going to replace it. And I don't really care. <laughs> so as long as you walk into it with that mentality. You're good, right? You're you you're you just not can't gonna go do wrong bench then, right? rest. Yeah, you're not going to do bench rest shooting with this, right? You're you're not going to put this in a machine gun. They are what they are, you know. Um, there's a lot. There's so much. There's so much information and so much science out there. Um, folks could literally spend hours upon hours, weeks upon weeks, uh, YouTube videos, Googling articles. Um, you name it to learn about all of the actual details about how all of this stuff is done. Um, industry wide, when you ask around and generally speaking, folks tell you that, Hey, this is a pretty good barrel. They're probably right. They're not that much different, you know, from company to company, except for some of the little things that they do. Um, nowadays with the technology we have, um, and the materials that we have, it's not super hard here. I guess this will be a good way to say this. It's not super hard to make a good barrel, but it's really easy to screw one up. <laughs> okay. Um, so QC being in place um, throughout the process. Um, and granted, you know, like you'll see some issues from time to time with certain things, and sometimes they're fixable and sometimes they're not. But um, take understand how to treat and take care of your barrel for the purpose that you bought it for. Breaking it in for bench rest is completely different than breaking it in for you know, uh, call it cold bore extreme long range, which is completely different than the military, if you will, version of cleaning of clean the snot out of it and then shoot it again and whatever, because they are not going after quarter MOA accuracy. Right. A lot of that is, you know, a lot of that uh, comes from some of the older uh, powders and chemicals and corrosive primers and such where the regiment was, after you shoot it, you clean it. Because you had to get all the corrosive materials out of the barrel or it would just rust away. That was actually true. 
Nowadays, not so much. Modern powders, modern primers, you don't really have to. So do a lot of learning. Do a lot of research on how you should treat your barrel for the purpose you bought it for. And that'll put you on the right track. So there's one more kind of area that we hear a lot of questions about. And, you know, I I have a pretty comfortable, um, hands-on experience with it, but... I think for a lot of people, it's something that they get hung up on. And that's, that's your, your gas system. So we're going to, mm-hmm. you know, shift. We, we've been talking primarily about AR barrels, yeah. but exclusively in the AR world, that's where we're talking about our gas length because, you know, fundamentally it's, it's not relevant to much of the other parts of the industry. So in terms of a, rifle length versus a mid length versus a carbine length and versus a pistol length gas mm-hmm. system. We're talking about the same gas block at any of the four position. We're mm-hmm. talking about the same materials in the gas tube. <clears throat> By and large, I have seen what they call it, a pigtail, the pistol length that's got a couple of uh, <laughs> yeah. lengths of Sorry. it wrapped around the barrel. So that you can yeah. have the length. I don't want to make anyone mad. So yeah, they exist. Um, but it's predominantly the same material, right? Uh, yep. There's not a, a wide array of, of metal that is used for that nope. particular function. Nope. Um, so in general, you know, if we take the idea that the rifling system was how the rifle was designed. And if we take the premise that the shorter you make the system, uh, the more abusive the environment is when you begin to expel the gases into the, the rifle. Um, mm-hmm. you're going to have an increase in abuse the shorter you get. Is that, is that a fair statement? Well, it's, it is, uh, to a point. So let's talk about a, uh, carbine length, um, gas system with a, uh, uh, properly sized port. Mm-hmm. Versus a mid-length system with an oversized port, okay? The mid-length with an oversized port is going to be more abusive than the carbine with the properly sized port. Right. So there's a, there's an, there's a balance, there's an equation here. But generally speaking, yes. The shorter you go in rifle system, the gas length system, what you're doing, <clears throat> what you're doing is you're saying, um, hey, uh, super hot explosive gases, I want you to either come into the action right away, because I don't have a lot of dwell time to cycle this thing, or you're saying, well, you can wait a little bit, or you can wait a lot longer. And a lot of that has to do with um, the cartridge uh, and the ammunition and its, and its load. Um, talk about the blackout. Like, the blackout just doesn't have enough, um, doesn't have enough pressure uh, downrange, down the bore, if you will, to cycle a rifle-length gas system. You, know, you can make the port... 30 caliber. It's not, it doesn't matter. It, there's not, there's just not enough. Um, people had problems running them with 16 inch barrels with carbine gas. Um, so now they run pistol for more reliability. It, it, a lot of it has to do, it has to do with the cartridge. Okay. Um, you've got your, how much powder is, is the cartridge holding? And again, well, that's, this is a lot of internal ballistic stuff, but how much cartridge, you know, how much powder is the cartridge holding uh, to the bore ratio? Right. And then, um, how fast are slow or slow are the powders that you're using are there's this a lot of trial and you know trial and error that gives you this final result you can you can map it on a graph you can map it on a chart for the most part um, what would be more ideal for this cartridge in an AR barrel at at particular lengths so what you can't do 
Um, so this is a, again, here's that 22 inch mongoose. So this is a 22 inch mongoose with a rifle length gas system. Right. The mongoose is a two, two, three parent case with even just a little bit more powder in it. Right. Pushing a six millimeter bullet. So it's similar to the two, two, three. So in that, with this long of a barrel, I have this much dwell time, which is between the gas port and the muzzle. Okay. Which allows, if you can imagine the bullet traveling down the bore, when the bullet passes the gas port, the bullet is still in the bore for a certain amount of time from the gas port till it leaves the muzzle. That's dwell time. While it's in there, that allows more of the pressure being built in the barrel to be pushed up through that gas port to cycle the gun. Okay. Now, in a carbine length, right? Usually in a two-two-three style, carbine is going to be like 16 inches, 14 and a half inches length, right? So your dwell time is still pretty similar. Yeah. But your gas system is shorter because um, when when the when the when you fire the cartridge, the barrel is only this long. You have this much dwell time to use, um, and because there's less actual pressure kept in the barrel due to its length, you need to shorten the gas system to get a little bit more gas through the port and in the action to cycle it before the muzzle the bullet leaves the muzzle. Same thing when you're talking pistol. So an eight and a half inch or ten and a half inch barrel uh, in most cartridges is going to be pistol gas. Um, in a twelve and a half inch barrel, some are going to be pistol, some are going to be carbine. Um, we just actually uh, developed a new um, a new gas length system with uh, Black River Tactical. We worked together on this a little bit. We call it a PDW, and it's between pistol and carbine. Um, Basically, it's 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 basically halfway between pistol and carbine. Right. Uh, the reason why we did this is because in our twelve and a half inch two seven seven Wolverine barrels, we had them all in pistol gas, and they ran, and they ran great, but they were running uh, pretty overgassed, supersonic, and um, just fine in subsonic, and 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 that's great. But if you put an adjustable gas block on it, you're going to choke gas, which is not going to let it run subs. So you'd have to flip it back and forth, and we're not a switch block kind of, we don't like that. We want to find the solution. So with um, with BRT, what we said is we, we need a gas system between pistol and carbine. Okay. So we went to the we went to the map, right? Uh, we got custom gas tubes made, um, a, new, uh, a new spec, a new drawing for the length of the uh, gas system on the barrel. So this is pistol right here. Carbine would be about right here. PDW is about right here. We threw the first batch out there, and they run like a top. Right. So with the and this is why. So with the um, most common powders in that cartridge, in that barrel length, it wants this length gas system with this sized gas port to create an equilibrium. Okay. So um, we've talked about kind of the 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 nuance of the gas length, mm-hmm. and the the port size has been a component of it. But let's talk about how much of the decision-making that you have to do relies on that very specific question. What diameter hole am I going to drill? I mean, is that all of it? Is it, like you said, an equilibrium? It's an equal part in the the calculation. Um, Where does that take you, just that that piece? So gas ports are fun because um, when you're, especially when you're developing new stuff and new barrel lengths and new gas, you don't, you don't know. So you just use what's called a starter port. Starter port is 0.050. Okay. Um, 
you're going to use your typical loads. You, you're you're pretty sure that this gas length system is the one to go with. You just don't know your port size. You don't know the right port size. So you drill a starter port and you fire around. Doesn't cycle. Make sure that you know that it's because there wasn't you know it's under gassed and not some other issue. And open the port. Do it again. Doesn't cycle. Open the port. All other things being equal, all other things being correct, there's not enough gas making it back into the action to cycle. Then you open it to the point where it cycles, and you make sure it's not abusive, and you make sure it's not overgassed. And overgas is that, you know, where is your where are your cases ejecting is one of the best maps, right? You don't want to be overgassed. You don't want to be undergassed. You want to be at that 3, I like 330. Uh, I'm comfortable with 330. Uh some of the books will say four o'clock is best. I don't, whatever. Let's not argue over three thirty or four. But <laughs> I like three thirty. But um, there's uh, all different kinds of pressures that are happening, right? When a when a cartridge um, when a cartridge goes off in a barrel, um, you've got uh, you know shot start pressure. Then you've got peak pressure. Uh, all of these things factor into what gas system length and what port size to cycle the gun. Do I need? M1As have a different type of gas system, different type of gas system length, different type of gas system port size. Same thing with an AK. It's the rifle itself and what it needs. How much, how much, what does it need to cycle the action? It needs this much pressure from, from the gas system to cycle the action. How do you get the rifle to get that much pressure to cycle, that much gas to cycle action without Without the, without it being an overgassed or abusive situation, you have to. Now the standards are set for two two three. Since we're talking about that, you know, uh, twenty inch barrels are rifle gas. Nice soft recoil impulse. It's basically that's what it was designed to be. You really don't have to mess with it. It runs great. Mid length, uh, generally speaking, I, I think eighteen inches is best for a mid length, right? Uh, Sixteen inch and under, most folks are going carbine. I happen to like um, I happen to like a mid length two two three. The only problem is that most factory ammo and most guys out there won't be able to maybe have it tuned properly to have it run right. But it's softer. It's less. It's less abusive. It's less abuse to the action if you can keep uh, if you can keep the gassing situation to just enough to cycle the action plus a little bit more for a safety factor, but no more than that. That's where you want to be. And adjustable gas blocks are people's friends because a lot of barrels that come out on the market are overgassed so that they get less emails saying that the person's gun won't cycle. So they overgas them on purpose. People need to understand that. Um, you'll find that on a factory off the rack gun, you may want to address it. You may want to put an adjustable gas block on it. You may want to do something to slow it down just a little bit. More than likely, it's going to be overgassed because... Again, that's less emails saying my gun won't cycle. It'll definitely cycle because it's overgassed. But now, you know, it's beating up brass. Uh, it feels like it's slamming every time it cycles. Again, not unlike the actual internal, there, it's a, there's, there's a balance to it. There's a science to it. There's an equilibrium point where you're, you're providing enough gas to cycle the action without it being an abusive situation uh, to the weapon system. So let's take that one step further, just kind of as an overarching idea based on what, what I heard you say, would it be fair to say that if you were going to buy a barrel, which has a, a port drilled to allow for overgassing so they don't have as many complaints, 
Should the rule of thumb to be be to buy an adjustable gas block just as an ordinary course of what you're doing? So if you want to if if you want to be proactive just in case, yes. If you're not um, overly concerned about it, then no. I mean, you can buy a, a standard low pro gas block for, I mean, heck, some places have them from eight to fifteen bucks or whatever, right? right. And then you and then you've got adjustable gas blocks anywhere from on the low end of thirty five dollars up to one hundred and thirty dollars, right? Then you've got other companies that switch blocks and all this other stuff that can cost you a couple hundred bucks, right? Right, right. You you might you might not need it. Now, oh, I don't want to build it and then find out I need it. Well, after I mean, let's put it to you this way: if if I if 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 this was a two two three barrel and it showed up in the mail to me and I bought it from someplace and the way it is and I measure the port and it, I I'll know it's over gassed if it's over gassed and I'll throw an adjustable on it so I know I'm going to click it down a few just to keep it tame. If it's the right size port, I won't. So where would you go to get that number? I mean. Well, that's some of the secret sauce. That's some of the secret sauce. You know, uh, that's that's some of the secret sauce. So there's us. Let's let's. I I would venture to say that just about every company out there that works in barrels has what I have, um, what we have, which is what we consider to be, and it can be different. Okay, what we consider to be our ideal port size by gas system length by twist rate by cartridge. It's a big spreadsheet. It says, if it's this long, in this twist, in this cartridge, this gas system length, this is the port size. So it's a, and, and it's a lot of trial and error, and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and MFs throwing stuff across the room. <laughs> what I said earlier about how sometimes the best way to learn is to really screw some stuff up, right? Um, I would venture to say that just about every company has that, and if you were having some sort of an issue that you might be able to say something like, well... Uh, what what gas port size is this supposed to be? You probably get an answer out of them, but if you ask them to email you their chart, that ain't happening. Never going to happen. No. There's a lot of proprietary information in there. And now, and again, it might vary from company. You can you can Google. If you do this right now, if everybody at home right now just does this, I guarantee they're all going to find 75 different answers. What's the best best gas port size for a 20-inch to 2-3? Good luck. You're going to, you're just, you're, you're, there's good luck. You're going to find 900 different answers. What you got to do is just kind of work your way through it and figure it out either on your own or trust whoever you bought the barrel from that they did it right. And if they didn't, you have to throw in a dust That's all. So you know, one of the things that occurs to me is just kind of the the enormous amount of information out there that that I don't think is complete in the hands of those people using it. And and I'm going to throw the forums under the, the bus here. You know, I can't tell you how many times I'd, I'd see some guy saying, Hey, you know, I'm having this problem. And, you know, some guy would always go in and say, well, you need to drill the gas port open, you know, or, you know, some guy, you know, everybody would have some, you know, angle on what the problem is. And, yeah. you know, I, I will tell you that in my experience, when I've screwed something up, it's not anything normal. You know, it's, you know, why won't the car work? It, you know, something's wrong. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I disconnected the battery this morning to do X, Y, Z, or it won't move because the parking brakes on it. It's something like that. You know, it's not, yeah. you know, the, it's not the most complex, convoluted series of things that's leading me to sure. a problem. 
And, and I just kind of think it's funny that yeah. that's where the solutions come from. Yeah. So drilling the gas port, if you're, if your gun's not cycling, drilling the gas port is the very, very last, um, diagnostic uh, or step in diagnostics. So read I, in here. I, I love what, we, I love what we do. And I, and I love everybody that's, that's into what we're into and everybody we talk with and everything. But when you spend three and a half hours back and forth by email or whatever it is by phone with someone about how your barrel sucks, it won't cycle anything, gas port's the wrong size, chamber's jacked up, extension is loose, and those are all the reasons why my gun won't cycle, only to find out in the end that they installed their gas tube upside down <laughs> is um is what makes our jobs fun. So uh yeah. Listening to people people on the forums and everything like that are, are great and, and you know um sharing knowledge and experience uh and trying to help guide people through uh diagnosing issues. But it, when you're on the receiving end you also have to understand that like People are only throwing out what they know based on their experiences. Right. And anything that sounds dramatic, like drill a bigger hole in your barrel, is dramatic. And that's that's the very last step. Now, granted that, you know, at sometimes that is the solution. Sometimes it came with a small port. Um, but maybe your gas tube's in upside down. <laughs> uh, maybe your gas block. Maybe your gas block isn't seated properly. Uh, did you remember to leave the .030 for the shoulder? Does it have a dimple? Uh, is the gas block aligned? Um, are you shooting good ammo? Um, are your cases sized properly? Is it factory ammo? Uh, did you clean this thing at all? Who built it? Who installed it? Um, let's let's go through all you know step one through twenty five before we get to drill your gas port. Um, uh, people are are super helpful and it's awesome. But if, like I said, on the receiving end, you also have to try to weed through what is good advice. And what is somebody's just saying, drill your gas port? So, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the aspects of the barrel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously, we're not going to spend any great deal of time on everything towards the chamber end. But let's talk about the muzzle. Sure. So, you know, I I have people ask us to do a muzzle show, a muzzle device show all the time. Okay. And... You know, I got to tell you, it's not that I don't want to, it's <laughs> that I can't afford to, you know, just the sheer number of devices out there and the claims that are made Oh yeah, and the variety of shapes and dimensions and, you know, variables that they're trying to impart on a, you know, piece of steel so that it can deliver some claim. I mean, it's daunting. I'll, I'd almost have to, you know get rid of my kid's college fund to afford that many muzzle devices. Yep. So I'm not, I'm not ever going to do that show. <laughs> I yeah. promise I'll do it. I might say maybe in the future, but I, I'm not likely to do it. And there are other places where I've seen really good write-ups, but in terms of the muzzle devices, mm. you know, a lot of people I've heard talk about how, you know, it allows me to keep the, the rifle, you know, flat and follow-up shots really super easy. And, you know, there's all sorts of claims and expressions of, of what they can do. I mean, I think 
experientially, there's a lot of that that has to do with the shooter and how they're trained to use the rifle. But in terms of what you know of rifle manufacturing, what you know of the ballistics, what you have, you know, learned um, with all of the wildcatting and just in general everything you guys do over there at Mad Dog, how much of muzzle devices is, you know, hype and how much of it is science and technology really delivering? Sure. Okay, great. Um, So, again, uh, muzzle devices are purpose-driven, right? So – Flash hider is because you just want to hide flash and that's it. Um, A compensator is because you want to reduce uh, muzzle flip, if you will. Keep your your muzzle pointed down when you fire. Um, A brake is because you want to uh, keep felt recoil uh, at a minimum if possible. So purpose-driven once again. Um, Performance, then looks. Okay, Everybody has to be honest with themselves that Sometimes they bought the one they bought because it looks cool. And that's fine. I I said we wouldn't talk too much about fluting, but that's great, (laughs) right? Um, I I think fluting looks cool and everything. And and it does. You know, there's a lot of wild claims about fluting, too. You know, it it does aid in some things, but people need to remember that no matter what, if you're removing material, right, you're reducing rigidity. So that's, that's just, that's a fact of life, right? So... With a muzzle device, um, what's, your, what's your purpose? What do you want? And if you go and you do and, and you do a little bit of research, right? And maybe the one that you think looks the coolest doesn't have one of those lab tests done on it. You might have to test it yourself once you bought it, and that's fine. Um, but they all do serve. They all do serve a purpose. And uh, I, I generally hate the word better. Some of them do it better than you know do their job better than others. Um, but really, if, if the point of a flash hider is to reduce flash, base your decision on how much flash it reduced. Mm-hmm. If the point of a compensator is to reduce flip, base your decision on how much flip it reduced. Same thing with a brake. Also, if your purpose, for example, like a muzzle brake, let's just call it that, I've got this big honking target rifle, so I want to put a muzzle brake on it because I don't want to get whacked with that recoil every time. Well, smart, cool. What brake did you get? I got this 360-degree thing with big fins on it and man this thing i don't it's gonna be great okay first shot dirt flies everywhere right can't even don't even think about making a second shot for five minutes the guy next to you leaves right or your spotter his (laughs) contacts right his contacts weld to his eyeballs because of the concussion um just like any part of the weapon system you've got to do your research right so what's the purpose for it what are you really trying to accomplish? And I'll, I, I will be the first to say that even though we offer a muzzle device that I really like, it's not for everybody. Um, it's not for every purpose. Um, and sorry, big, uh, big, big companies with big egos and all that, but some of the $9 eBay muzzle devices are just as good, if not better, than the $70 ones. Okay? Um, your best bet is to, again... You know, solicit some referrals from people you trust and know in the industry. Um, remember what your purpose is. If it's just to look cool, man, there's lots of expensive options for looking cool because you can spend a lot of time machining a muzzle device to make it look cool, but it doesn't do anything. Right. Um, other than be a device that sits on your muzzle. Yeah, other than be this cool-looking pokey stabby thing that you're, <laughs> I mean, whatever, you know. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, purpose driven. So again, purpose and purpose driven performance over looks. Unless all you care about is the looks, then just go for looks and don't care about anything else. But um, sure, flash hider. Okay, so A1 versus A2. Here's a good example, right? A1's a great flash hider. Problem is, is that it kicked up dirt underneath it, right? So they're like, well, we got to fix that. So they close the bottom. A2 works great too, just as good. So play with them. Figure out what you want. Uh, figure out what you don't want. And then if looks is a factor, fine, but try to consider that last. Right, right. So, ha- I mean, tell me, have you ever have you ever been at the range? You've just put on somebody's miracle wonder device, and you're like, damn, that really works. Or have you always been kind of like, because here's my thing, you know, I, I consider myself, you know, ham-fisted. I'm a, you know, and you know, knuckle-dragging Marine when I get on a rifle, and I'm just, you know, a monkey pulling a trigger. I am not going to sit on a mil-spec trigger and sit here and analyze, you know, how gritty or, you know, how <laughs> what, how, how much, you know, what, what's the, the weight of the trigger? I, I, just, I just pull the thing, you know what I mean? And, yeah, it's I got get too on... Much- Huh? It's got too much creep, but not about <laughs> enough let off. Yeah. And I get on, I get on my bolt guns and, you know, I can shoot, you know, I can put three rounds inside of a nickel with a yeah. seven millimeter magnum I have at a hundred yards. And it's a great rifle, but you know what? It's a factory trigger and I've never tinkered with it. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, I am not that you know, machine that, you know, takes a block of sandpaper to the end of my finger so I can detect, you know, some subtlety of, of the trigger. So I don't care. And, and, you know, felt recoil, you know, I didn't pay enough attention to the recoil to even notice it recoiled. So, yeah. you know, what did my $80 buy me? Sure. Um, so they all kind of fall into this middle space that's, well, you know, eh, I don't know what it did, but hey, you know, Somebody yeah. says it's great. Um, have you had that experience where you've put something on and you're like, damn, this is it. This is the one. Yeah. yeah. So I really like, again, so I'm biased because it's ours. I like ours, uh, the one that we offer. Um, for a lot, of, a lot of the shooting I do and all of it, you know. Um, I'll tell you the, the biggest time, the, big, the, the one time I saw the biggest difference ever uh, was at one of our group shoots. I sat down and I shot a um, – uh, recessed crown 338 Lapua Magnum. No break on it, no nothing. Okay. And that's pretty stout. Yeah. It's a stout sucker, right? And right next to it was a 50. Okay. Um, it was a, a single shot. It was, a, it was an Armalite Air 50. Um, single shot, 50 BMG. And I looked at the 50 BMG and I was like, oh man, well, I think I'll shoot the Lapua first since it's smaller. <laughs> right. That thing whacked. That thing whacked me good. That whacked me good. So I shot that thing and I was like, oh man, I don't know. I don't even know if I want to do the 50 now. And they're like, no, it's fine. Go shoot it. All right, fine. Because of course I was, you know, going to shoot it. And I squeezed off the 50 and it felt like, you know, somebody kissed me in the shoulder because of that break, that big monster break. Now nobody wanted to be near me when I shot it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but it was, it was half of the felt recoil of the 330. So yeah, I have seen. And there are designs for purposes that do what they're supposed to be doing very, very well. Um, one of the best flash hiders is all. If all you're talking is flash hider, one of the best flash hiders ever created was is the Phantom. 
the amount of flash it reduces is is awesome. But it's, it's a little snaggy, it, you know, whatever. It's not necessarily my style, but it's a great flash hider. Right. But you know what? The Ink 2 is pretty good, too. Um, as far as brakes go, there's some crazy stuff out there nowadays, man. And um, two-chamber, three-chamber, you know, whatever. Just make sure that, again, purpose-driven, try to get some, um, you know, trusted uh, input or feedback on its actual performance, and then and then it's and then it's a looks after that. There's a few out there that do a really really good job, and some of them are fancy and expensive, and some of them aren't. Um, some people don't care if they're good or not, just how cool they look. It's all it's all relative, I guess. But yeah, there are there are devices that work. Uh, one of my other favorites is a Black River Tactical BRT called Covert Comp. Uh, it's basically just a linear it's a linear compensator flash hider. So um, not unlike a bare muzzle, it does push everything forward, but it does dissipate the flash. So there's a lot of flash reduction. And I can notice the difference when I have one on. And when I don't, the, the, the actual feel of the pulse when the rifle goes off, okay? Um, without it, bare muzzle, it's a, it's a regular, it, I don't know, it's a, it's a regular recoil impulse. With it on, and this might have to do with a combination of the reduced flash plus a little bit of reduced concussion plus maybe just a little bit of dissipated, um, you know, uh, uh, gases, so a little bit of reduced uh, recoil. But it does feel like it shoots a little bit softer. Yeah. It could be in my head. I haven't put it on a machine, but I prefer to have it on. So um, that's another one. Of my, I like those a lot. Uh, well, let me yeah, ask some you of this. Them work to- Is there a, a, a protocol? that everybody trusts that you can put different muzzle devices in play and say, oh, well, this reduces recoil by 13%, but this one does it by 23%. Oh, yeah. No. So that, all, that's not a thing. They, what they claim. Yeah, it's what they claim. Uh, so, um, shoot, how do I say this? Um, when, it comes to, when it comes to devices that can actually make a claim that it eliminates 98% of the flash, that will be one of those that has a video that shows it, and they don't just say it. Um, you you can't take a, you can't take a type of device and say that this type of device will eliminate fifty percent of that. They're all they're all you know they're all different. However, they're what they're bored out to. How big are the how big are the chambers? How big are the ports? How far apart are they? What angle are they? You know, I, there's no. There, there's no standardization chart that I'm aware of, at least, that says, you know, this type will reduce this by this much. Now, maybe generally speaking, you could say that a good break will, you know, you'll feel half of the, the recoil. Okay, well, that doesn't really tell me much, but okay, right. fair enough. Um, but the manufacturer, you know, the manufacturers are the ones that are going to make the claims. Um, and if they, you know, if, if they if they live up to it, they do. And if they if they don't, they don't. But a lot of it's going to depend on the shooter too, because some people can't handle recoil at all. So even though the device knocked half of it off, it's still too much. It didn't do anything. Well, okay, well it actually did, but you're you still can't handle it. That's all. That's okay. No big deal, <laughs> right? Um, it wasn't a lot. It wasn't a lot in the first place, but no worries. Um, but yeah, I, you know, again, I, you know, the internet's our friend these days, right? So if it's trusted sources. Do some research, find out what you want to accomplish, do some research on it, and then make a decision and, and run with it. You know, if you found out you were wrong, then whatever, 
buy the other one. Try that. So something that just occurred to me, and I think maybe this this is kind of the last point that we can cover tonight because we've really covered a lot of things. When you go to the market today and you're going to buy a barrel, I mean, in, in many cases, you don't have a a set of features you can tell your seller to, you know, put on your barrel. You mm-hmm. you buy what they make and they make whatever it is, you know, they've decided that they're going to make because it makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. But before that becomes the thing they're going to sell, and, and I'm going to use, what is it, the SPR, um, Special Purpose Rifle Barrel. Um, it has a bunch of features that people are looking to get. Um, they like to make the clones of the rifle and all these other items. But are those, the end result being that barrel, would you say that that is the result of, once again, someone going out and saying, I want it to do this. This is the purpose. What's mm-hmm. the best way to achieve the purpose? Yeah. Um, they find success with the result of that process. And then mm-hmm. the market looks at it and says, oh, wait a minute. These guys over here in the military are doing this awesome thing. Let's copy that and sell it publicly. I mean, is that is it fair to say that that's a lot of what goes it, on? It, it, it is. So uh, you and I, for example, I don't know about you, but I know for sure for me, you and I don't have um, uh, millions upon millions of taxpayer dollars to use to do endless research. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so, yeah, if, 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 I had a, if I had my own taxpayer-funded lab um, with no budget, uh, apparently these days, uh, I, I mean, we could come up with some crazy cool stuff, right? right. And some of it's going to stick and some of it's not. Some of it's going to be good and some of it's not. Um, when it comes to certain barrel uh, profiles or contours, um, they are – it's funny you picked SPR because it's a special purpose rifle, okay? Right? Special purpose. Um, reminds me of the, the jerk. But anyways, uh, <laughs> oh, my special purpose. Uh, but anyways, uh, SPR profiles are medium, a little bit more than medium, if you will, weight. Um, and again, what it all comes down to is an SPR barrel. Is What it's saying to you is that, like, let's take an SPR barrel and put it next to the same length, same cartridge, lightweight barrel, right? right. What's, the light, what's the lightweight barrel telling you? I want it to weigh less. What's the SPR barrel telling you? I don't care if it weighs a little bit more. I want it to be more accurate. Well, what makes it more accurate? Eh, it might not necessarily be, but by design, it has better rigidity. Therefore, it has the opportunity or the capability to be a little bit more accurate because it's easier to, it will generally speaking, have better harmonics than the lightweight barrel. And therefore, all other things being equal, the SPR profile will be more consistent than the lightweight barrel, because the lightweight barrel is going to have, um, well, you can, it's not a rule, but it's a, it's a general rule of thumb. Better rigidity equals a more consistent barrel. Right. Okay. So SPR is like, hey, I'm not trying to do, you know, run around with the lightest, weightest thing possible. I don't mind if it has a little bit of weight to it, but I want it to be a little bit stout so that I have a little bit more rigidity in my barrel, which gives me the opportunity for it to be a little bit more accurate. Does that make sense? Absolutely. If, um, I mean, we talked about the, the idea of, in, in terms of barrel making, we've been at it a long time. So we've learned a thing or two over the span of that time. Um, a lot of the, the idea of the cold hammer forging, those are what, World War One, World War Two manufacturing techniques? Oh, they're, yeah. not, they're not new. They're very, very well 
Oh yeah, uh, we have a lot of data, empirical data that that supports the the value of the technology. Otherwise, they would have replaced it by something by now. So, in terms of what we see on the market today, yeah, I mean, I would posit that much of it is based on what is tried and true, and so right. there's not really a great deal that uh, can go awry, other than a sloppy manufacturer, and and sure. by and large, in much of it, um. But how much out there is new? I mean, right. are there people out there that are really going to go into uncharted territories? And I'm not talking about, you know, trying to reinvent the wheel and coming across the thing they did 60 years ago and decided it was a crappy idea. I'm talking about the guys that are, they're in uncharted territory. Is that yeah. happening a lot or is that just a little? Yeah. I, mean, I, think, what would you I think? think so. So I think a lot of it has to do with the entire weapon system, though, and not necessarily just barrel manufacturing. So if you start looking at things like caseless ammunition mm-hmm. um, and some and some other similar things, and I mean... Well, that was HK in the... What was the G11 in the 80s? There, There's... Yeah. So I, I guess... Re, I, think you'll, I think you'll understand. So there's a lot of companies making really technologically advanced tires, but the wheel is still round. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. So um, at the at, at the end of the day, yes, there's always going to be cool stuff and new breakthroughs and um, new approaches and new technologies bringing new whatevers to the forefront of the blah blah blah. Yeah, but at the end of at, at the end of the day, we're we're still we're still talking firearms here. And if we're talking brass cased firearms, there are some known. Um, standards, um, and there are some known best practices. Okay, um, that you know you don't necessarily have to venture from now. When it comes to the fine details or the fine tuning or making them uh, a little bit more of your own or, or or trying new things, it's great. But the wheel is still round. You know, I think most of the the technological advances again nowadays it has to do with. Um, Alternatives to brass cased ammunition, mm-hmm. uh, alternatives to uh, a traditional firearm. Um, and if someone's like, "Oh, is he talking about laser guns and stuff?" Well, sort of, but not really, but sort of. But anyways, um, there's when it comes to firearms, there's some very basic principles that are not going to change. It, it it is physics and math, and and that's it. It's it's physics, and if you have an, a, an understanding of physics. And, and, and a good grip on how to how to competently perform some somewhat complex math. Sometimes it it it, it is what it it is what it is. Um, sure, you can use different materials for this or create that extra cut there, and maybe it gives you a marginal change in that. But at the end of the day, you still have guys out there that are shooting uh, bull barrel twenty five odd sixes at a bench rest competition because they want to uh, shooting groups the size of a dime at like 600 meters and they don't have anything fancy at all. They just, along the process, they just did it right. Yeah. I, I guess I don't know how to say it uh, in a different way, but you can buy a thousand dollar piece of junk and you can buy a $200. Awesome. Um, who does what with what specific technologies or designs or whatever is what is what they choose to do for their what they like in their market and what they think is best. But um, you know, this is still the dangerous end, no matter what. Right. I. You know, it is. It is what it is. Protect your crown. 
<laughs> Brown before we hang up. Well, I think we've covered a lot of territory. I think so too. What time is it? Yep. We did it again, Reed. Yeah. Half half hour show is two hours long. You know, I enjoy those though. Those are always the best <laughs> ones. Lots of information. That's funny. Yeah, just mining it all day long. This is like a strip mine. Mm. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Give me half an hour and I will I will pull as much as I can out of the earth. <laughs> I enjoy I I enjoy talking with you and JD. You guys are great. Um again I, I, I appreciate, you know, you having me on and you know I'm again I'm the first to admit I don't know everything and I barely know anything. Um but I'll I'll talk about what I do know and I'm good with that. So uh everybody should go out there and, and learn on their own. Uh, and do a lot of research, uh, listen to trusted people. Uh, if you want to learn a lot about like, you know, how this whole system, especially when it comes to like extreme long range shooting and work your way backwards again, check out that, uh, sniper one one YouTube series. The guy did a job on that. Of them. Um, but do your research and learn, uh, you know, it won't come overnight, but you know, knowledge, you know, knowledge is, is, is king. It is what it is. So, well, absolutely. Mark, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for for uh, letting me uh, mine some gold out of this for you. No, so, no, no problem at all. It's my pleasure, really. Why don't you thanks hold for on for me, a dude. second, and yeah. we will. I'll read us out real quick. Okay. All right, listeners, you can send us your questions or comments to ar15.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd ask that you subscribe and listen to the AR15 podcast for free on iTunes or on Stitcher. Uh, and leave us a review so the show can place higher in the searches for uh, potential new listeners. Also, share your pics with us on Instagram at, at ar15podcast and tag your pictures with hashtag AR15podcast. Finally, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash AR15 podcast. And Mark, how can the listeners find you if they want to get some more information or look at some of the awesome things that you guys have in play right now? Thanks, Reed. Um, we have a, uh, a forum that we host. Uh, it's called the Modern Sporting Rifle Evolution Forum or MSRE Forum. You can just Google it. Uh, our company website is maddogweapons.com, M-A-D-D-O-G weapons.com. Um, lots of Facebook pages for all of our different cartridges. Uh, you can look up the company name as well. And that's enough shameless plugging for me. So again, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on, Reed. Well, anytime, Mark. Thank you for, for joining me tonight. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I guess we're going to call this a podcast and uh, let you all go to sleep. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. This has been a production of the Firearms Radio Network. You can find more information at firearmsradio.tv.